0: The following audio is from Cross Life Church in Tampa, Florida. We are a church that exists to help people find Christ, their place in the body, and their mission to the world. Our calling is to raise leaders and plant churches. So if you live in the Hudson area or near West of Chapel, you can also check us out at one of our other locations. For more information, visit us at crosslife.net. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I love this. For as is written, I have not seen, neither ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them unto us. He just kind of opened a door He's, that we can peek through um, by His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. And I'm reminded of... Uh, The reality of God not leaving us in the dark. He's not left himself without witness. In other words, there's this testimony through the ages of God's intervention with humanity. That's so good. This morning we're going to be talking about, um, we kind of finished up with the uh, end times and prophecy, but I had this in mind that This week and next week, I want to look at something that is so closely connected to those that help us understand that, yeah, we look back in prophecy and we we saw that God said He was going to do something and did do something, which gives us a hope, a reasonable hope, uh, a reason for hope, right? And yet, in the seven feasts that God instituted 3,000 years ago, for 3,000 years, God has been saying and revealing through the feast that His plans and intentions and purpose were for humanity. And so we're going to be looking at those over the next two weeks, so hopefully it's going to be a lot of fun. So you're going to see on the screen seven feasts, and we're going to be talking about them. Maybe we get through the first three today. Um, this is not in-depth by any means, but it's just this big picture to help us see the consistency of God and who God is. So you're going to find these seven feasts. If you were to look in Scripture, they're going to be in Leviticus chapter 23. All seven of them are found in Leviticus chapter 23. And just in order, you see them that's uh, Passover, Unleavened Bread, uh, First Fruits, Pentecost, uh, Feast of Trumpets. Uh, atonement, and tabernacles. And so, Leviticus chapter 23, verses 1 and 2 begin this way. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are appointed feasts of the Lord, that you shall proclaim them as holy convocations or assemblies. They are my appointed feasts. And so there's two words that I want to look at in, these, in this verse here, these verses here. The first one is the word feast. Now, if you're like me, when I think of feast, the first thing I think about is food, but that is not what this word means. The, the word feast in Hebrew means an appointed time. An appointed time or a fixed time or season. Now, the word applies to an assembly or applies to a gathering, but on a convened, appointed time. So when you hear the word feast, it was a gathering on an appointed time. And the second thing to keep in mind, the second word is assembly or convocation, which before is, it is a holy assembly, or it is a time for you as an assembly or a gathering of people to be set apart. But past that idea of this sacred assembly, the word used in assembly has a, a more specific idea with it, and it means a calling together as a rehearsal. Now, well, that's kind of interesting. It's a rehearsal. So, here this, um, God has established long ago, long ago, God established these fixed times during the year when the nation of Israel would be called out to gather together to practice or to prepare a rehearsal, to practice or to prepare for something. And so the feasts were God's calling them together, specific time, specific purpose. In the context of Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 kind of give us an important clue about the feasts and their purposes. And Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, 16 and 17, he says that these are, they are are a foreshadow, they're a shadow of things to come. So he says that these feasts are a shadow of things to come, and then says, but their reality is found in Christ. And so, we know that a shadow is a representation it's it's a representation of a form and the reality is the object itself so you know a lot of times we see a shadow cast and all it's doing is it is it is it is a shadow of a what a reality is and so Basically, Paul is saying that these holy days, these feasts which the Jews celebrated, according to biblical instruction, had been given by God to foreshadow, to foreshadow things that were to come. And Paul reveals what was to come, the foreshadowing of these feasts, was Christ Jesus. And we're going to learn as we walk through these feasts. And some of you already know this. They, they, they reveal God's master plan of salvation to all of humanity. And so the feasts are referred to not as feasts of Israel. But they were the feasts of the Lord. They were these divine um, gatherings that God had instituted. And they were... Not simply uh, only historical, but they were were prophetic. And they, we're going to find, they speak of the redemptive work that was to be accomplished through Jesus Christ. Now, in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 4, it says that the feasts would happen... In their seasons, and, uh, now in Israel there actually were only two seasons. There was the spring and there was, there was the, let me look at my notes so I don't mess this up. There were, the, uh, there were the warmer months in the spring and there were the rainy months that happened in the fall. Now, the first four feasts, as you can see up there, took place at the beginning of the warmer months in the spring that was beginning in April, and then the last three feasts took place in the beginning of the rainy months in the fall beginning in October, which is kind of interesting to me because that's a seven-month time frame. So these seven feasts took place in seven months. And so the prophetic message that they reveal in the New Testament is that the first four feasts speak of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the beginning of the church. So the first one, the feast of Passover, speaks of his death, the feasts of his burial speaks of the unleavened bread, the resurrection speaks of the first fruits of Jesus Christ, and then the birth of church. Fifty days later at the feast of Pentecost, and then it's interesting. So you know, um, we're, we're, we've been looking at this prophetically, but so you have, you have spring, and all these things happen, and we're going to discover that they happen one right after another. Uh, the Passover, then um, the next day was unleavened bread. A week later was first fruits. Fifty days later was Pentecost, and there was this long. Period of time, so to speak. In in retrospect, this long period of time, and then there were the last three feasts that were to occur. And I wanted this up here so you could kind of just see it. Uh, so um, let's see here. I'll find out where I am. So after the first, after the after that, after the first. Four feasts. Then there was these last three feasts, which speak of the end of the church age and the beginning of the regathering of God's people, which was a feast of trumpets. And then there was this time of Jacob's trouble, also referred as a great tribulation time, a time of judgment, which speaks concerning the feast of atonement. And then the last feast speaks of the kingdom of God, Uh, in our eternity with God, which is this idea of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, as we know, the first four have already been fulfilled. The first four feasts have already been fulfilled. Now, if you think about this for a minute, these feasts were celebrated on the same day every year. And just so you know, the first four feasts happened Jesus fulfilled them on the very day the very day of the feast of Israel so this is i don't know I just kind of look back and I just think that's that's kind of an amazing thing here all this is happening and the Jews kind of oblivious to see it what's going on and yet here now in the New Testament it's revealed kind of flashes back to show us that this these feasts were prophetic. They were prophetic of God's timetable. A calendar, so to speak, of events that were going to take place and they took place on the exact day that Jesus, that God said they would take place. Jesus fulfilled them. And so we got three feasts ahead of us that I kind of happen to think they're going to happen on the exact day. And they're going to happen in this sequential order that have taken place. So Jesus Died. He was buried. He rose again. sent the Spirit of God to establish the church. The next thing that's going to happen is the trumpets are going to blow. God's going to gather His people. There's going to be a judgment, and there's going to be an eternity with God. It's going to happen in that way. And you know, it's it's almost. You know, I know some people think a lot of different ways when we're talking through prophecy about when everything is going to take place. But I'm telling you what, that happened then, and now that's going to happen. It is going to happen. Just that way. And Jesus is going to fulfill all that God had intended to him to fulfill. Now, as believers, you know, it's not required that we uh, uh, keep the feast, but we really should be familiar with these. So, some of you that know this stuff, I'm reminding you, those that haven't heard it, you just pay attention. For me, it's God just. I used to have a a boss, then he said, hey, I already told you, now I'm telling you again. And it's almost like when we read through Scripture, for me, so many times it's like God said, okay, I told you, now I'm I'm telling you again. But with this, think about the Jews for 2,500 plus years, he's going... I'm telling you, I'm telling you again, I'm telling you again, I'm telling you again, I'm telling you again. For 2,500 years, every year, on those specific days, these things happen year after year after year after year after year. Now, I know, for okay, for me, communion. Some people say, why don't we do communion every Sunday? And this is just me, okay? So I go, well, because it just loses... Its effectiveness to me. You know, every Sunday seems like, okay, we're doing this again, and, and it's not like we pause and back up and we're in the moment to reflect but that's really what the Lord wants us to do and in the feast he was doing it with his people this is really what I want you to do this is what I really want you to pay attention because these aren't specifically historical events in the past but they are a foretelling of future events that will take place and for us these feasts in Christian theology are uh these historical events, these foreshadowings were like these types, they were these uh, rough draps or, the, or these glimpses into what is ahead. And, and for the most part, for me, I think that the Jews didn't realize the feasts were not solely related to their past, but they had a future event to look forward to. And if you think about this idea with these feasts, were rehearsals, what were they rehearsing for? What were they practicing for? They were practicing toward final redemption that was gonna happen through Messiah. And, and here's the thing so the Jews really didn't see it, and, and kind of thinking about it that way, when a Jew looks at the Passover, they're looking back to something that happened. In the past. You know, when, um, well, I'll get into that. Uh, so it was something they looked back to, but really it was something that was yet ahead of them. When they instituted the past, so when we get to that, you'll see it wasn't just simply about that moment in time, but it was also something to symbolize something that was ahead. So the feasts really have to do with the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Pretty specifically, and so the spring feasts and the summer feasts really were uh, signified the commencement of redemption, and the fall feast signify its culmination, the culmination of redemption. And again, the first four have already been fulfilled, and they were fulfilled in chronological order on that particular day. So let's look at the first one, uh, the Passover. And, of course, the Hebrew word there in the Hebrew meant to pass over, to exempt, or to spare. And it happened on the first 14th day of April, which is Nisan in in the Jewish calendar, which was the first month of their year. So they went by a lunar calendar. So if we think the first month of the year is January, it wasn't for the Jew. It was April. And it celebrates their deliverance, as we know, the nation of Israel from slavery under Pharaoh in their exodus out of Egypt, right? That whole event. And so we know that for 400 years, the Jews were enslaved in Israel. They cry out. God heard their cry. He sent Moses to deliver them. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And he says, yeah, that's not going to happen. And we know the whole thing. There were 10 plagues. And there was still this rebellion, this hard-heartedness from Pharaoh until the 10th plague. And on that, before that 10th plague, God instructed Moses, to tell the children of Israel, what you need to do is find a lamb, spotless lamb, and you were to slay it, and you were to take its blood, and you were to put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the doorposts, Because what was going to happen is a death angel was going to pass through the land, and whoever did not have the blood applied, uh, their firstborn uh, would be killed. And so they were diligent, and... As a death angel passed, they were, what's the word again for Passover? They were spared. They were passed over, and they were spared from the death that would occur. And so, Jesus literally fulfills this, symbolically and literally he fills it. Because on the tenth day of the month, Jesus rode into Jerusalem, remember he rode in on the donkey, and it was on the 10th day of the month that lambs were selected for slaughter. And then it was four days later that Jesus was actually crucified, which was on the very day that the sacrificial lambs were sacrificed. And so, you know, just thinking about all this, just how God was so deliberate about so many things, not just then, Now, all these thousands of years later, it's being fulfilled just like that. It was the shadow, it was a foreshadowing of God saying, Look, this is going to take place. And it's going to, the reality of what I'm trying to help you see is going to be found in Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so we learn also that the Passover lamb was to be a male without defect, was what Jesus was described as. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 says this, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver from your futile way of life, uh, inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. One other thing about this, when we look at the uh, fulfillment in Christ, remember He died on the cross, uh, and He died first right? Before the other two, what happened is then the Romans come along and they see that they're still alive. So the thing was that the Romans would break the legs of, of those who were being crucified. They wouldn't be able to lift themselves. They would drown in their own fluid and they would die. And it, it speeded, uh, speeded it up. But we know that that was customary back then. But um, the Romans broke the legs of the two feasts when they came to Jesus. They found that he has already was already dead. Which is interesting because in Exodus chapter 12, one of the things about the sacrificial lamb is that no bone was to be broken in its body. We know that John testifies that Jesus was a lamb that was spe- when he introduces Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then Paul reiterated that same thing, saying that. Christ was our Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us. So we get to the New Testament, it just begins to reveal and unfold the realities of what was foreshadowed back at that time. And so for us, you know, just as a destroyer passed over every home that was protected by the love of the lamb, we are passed over from judgment through the blood of Jesus, which is salvation. That is our salvation. Okay, the second feast was the unleavened bread. It's found in 20, uh, Leviticus chapter 23, verses 6 and 7. And it says that there then there is to be the feast of unleavened bread before the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation, you shall not do any laborious work, but for the seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord, and on the seventh day is a holy convocation, you shall not do any laborious work. So the feast of unleavened bread began on the 15th of the first day of the month of April for them, and then the day following, this was instituted for seven days. And so God commanded the Israelites to avoid eating any unleavened bread, uh, bread that contained anything that would ferment it, such as yeast, during the whole festival. And it reflected two things. Uh, the fact that the Israelites didn't have time to prepare bread and put leaven in it because they were, it was going to be a hasty departure from Egypt. And also because the Bible in the Bible, leaven symbolizes an evil influence of one kind or another. And so the symbolism of the feast of unleavened bread is that God's people cannot continue in the same patterns, but have to search out ways to remove the sin that is in their life. You know, and thinking about this, a thought of why... God connected sin in leaven. Jesus was talking about this, and God had talked about this, and he kind of put those things to do, maybe because the character character, and process of leavening, which symbolizes this fermentation process. Because when you put yeast into things, it just keeps spreading throughout the dough or the batter. And as it can continues to spread through the dough or batter, it really biologically changes the chemistry of the dough as it works through it. And so sin, like this leaven, uh, has a polluting quality because the permeating of sin in our life is a pollution. And so it doesn't stay small. Sin does not stay small, uh, and or can be contained for long, but it spreads quickly, and that's why often in the scriptures, you know, we need to put away, we need to get rid of. First John, uh, talking about we just need to confess our sins, forsake our sins, right? Because if we allow our lies to continue in a particular way. You're going to find that, I I, I can't tell you how many times, I've been, been doing this for so long, and in, not only in my own life, but watching and counseling and working with so many people, it just started somewhere, right? started somewhere, and that somewhere just kind of was like this uh, yeast, it was like this Agent in a person's life and it would all of a sudden... And I, I got somebody in mind that um, uh, came to Christ uh, probably for about four years later just decided to jump into or got involved in something that he shouldn't have got involved in which led to something more he shouldn't got involved in which led to something more that he shouldn't get involved in. Now... I see the guy and I'm going, he's just not any even resemblance. I mean just, and you know I I pray for him, my family prays for him because we're convinced we're convinced that God can break through to him and it just is a matter of a turn, repentance. This is a good lesson for us this morning. Listen, you could be in here and you could be way off course and you could think, well, There's no way to get back. That's just not true. (laughs) Here's, Here's the reality. You were a sinner, separated from God, His enemy. And He rescued you. He drew you to Himself. He brought you to a place of awareness and He rescued you. Broke the power of sin in your life. Put His Spirit in you. Now, at some point in your life you get way off course I, I don't know. For me, I think it's... It, is it a big thing for God to go, look, you've been walking off course. You just need to get back on course. See, you've already got a history of the goodness of God. You've already got a lot in you that is a reality. So for you then to make that shift and come back and just... It's this simple. A promise. It's this simple. Father, you can. here's my words. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Father, here's what I'm asking. I'm asking you to forgive me of that foolishness and nonsense. And I'm asking you just to embrace my life and pull me. Draw me to yourself. Because see, when you do that, you're walking away from one thing, you're embracing another. So it's not... It's not complicated. You have to decide somewhere in your life, is God's word true? Is God faithful? Will God forgive? And let me just say, yes, yes, yes. All of those things are true. And so another thing that unleavened bread eaten over a seven-day period is that it resembled or it symbolized walking a holy life. So we come to Christ, shed blood, now what is God wanting out of us? He's wanting us to live a particular way, to walk toward Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6-8 says this, Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? So get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And we know also that unleavened bread was a picture of Jesus, who was the bread of life. And we get to see it over and over uh, when we look at the feast. And so we know that um, the very piece of bread... So, so there were three matzahs in a Passover meal, three of them. And the middle one was representative Jesus. So at the beginning of the meal, what would happen is they would take the center matzah, they would pull it out, they'd break it, and they'd hide it. And then at the end of the meal... They would go and find, okay, so they would break the bed and hide it, the burial of Jesus. Then at the end of the meal, what they would do is they would send the children and they would go find the bread, bring it back. They had found it. It was resurrected. And it was the last thing that was eaten at the Passover meal. And so we, we get to see this even in the matzah. So it was, it was the matzah bread was without leaven, it was flat, and it was striped, and it was pierced, which represented of Jesus. He was, by his stripes, we are healed. Uh, he was, everyone, what, what, how's that verse read? Uh, those who pierced him, uh, I should have written this down. Anyway, this matzah bread, this representation symbolically of who Jesus was, pointed to the Messiah's sinless life, making him a perfect sacrifice for our sin. So the third feast, then, the Feast of first fruits, is found in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 through 14, where he says to speak to the children of Israel, Whenever you enter the land which I am going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring the sheaves of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted on that day. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And so the Feast of First Fruits happened then on the 17th of April and was celebrated, uh, it was a celebration of the harvest. Uh, so when the sheaves presented for the very first time, the harvest was waved before the Lord, and it was symbolic of a gesture that indicated coming fruitfulness, more fruit to come, more of a harvest to come. And so we know that Jesus rose from the dead on the day of first fruits. And so his resurrection symbolized he was the first fruits of many that would come. But he was the first. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 20 to 23 says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man death came, by man also the resurrection from the dead for his as in Adam, all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in its own order, each in its own order, Christ, first fruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming so I, I was thinking about this, you know there's interesting detail about uh, Mary Magdalene. she runs to the tomb, finds out that the tomb is empty she or open. She runs to the tomb. She gets to the tomb uh, and um, doesn't know what's going on. She thinks she's talking to a gardener. All of a sudden, she realizes it's Jesus, and Jesus says something to her that was, has always been interesting to me. I wondered why this was true. It says, uh, she went toward him, and he says, don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended from my father. And I just thought that kind of, well, what's that all about? And um, then he says, instead, what you need to do is go to the brethren and tell them that I have ascended and I am going to my God and your God. And so why wasn't Mary allowed to touch? Well, the historian Josephus says this that during the first the feast of the first fruits the Jews were not allowed to touch any of the harvest they weren't to eat it partake of it they weren't supposed to touch it until the first fruits had gone into the temple of God and been waved as an offering before God they couldn't do any of that and so for me kind of thinking that Jesus had presented himself to the father before he made any human contact, before he witnessed, before his resurrection was witnessed to his disciples who would believe, who would be those fruits that would follow him. And so I thought, you know, I don't know if that's your trigger or not, but for me it's like, that's an interesting thing to me that... uh, Little details, and you know, I, I know that a lot of you study, and you have a lot in here that you know way more than what I've said. But it's it it has always blown me away the little details. I mean, even when Dominique talked, uh, shared in the about the uh, in the Christmas story, and she read about how that Jesus was laid in a manger, which was not uh, a wooden trough with hay, but it was a stone. It was milled out. It was carved out of stone, he was wrapped and laid in the manger, which is what the sacrificial lamb was laid in. And so Doug and I were talking about it this morning, and the the idea that the shepherds are out in the field, they know what, they're Jews, they're shepherds. They were the ones that actually would set apart these particular lambs to make sure that they would be without spot and blemish, And they knew that only the sacrificial lamb would be wrapped up and laid in this stone manger. So Doug was telling me this morning, I thought about this. They walked in and they went, hmm, there's a human laying in the manger. And it wasn't until after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit and Jesus revealing to them, you wonder how many of them shepherds went, aha. And for us, when we read through Scripture, and I encourage us to read through Scripture and learn, you know, when you're reading through Scripture and you find something, you go, I wonder what that's all about. Search it. Google, that's easy. But watch the sites that you go on because, you know, I don't think that certain ones are going to give you the right information about stuff, but research broadly. They're simple stuff. You know, you reach up, what does this mean? And then they got the little box on Google and, and it'll give you some several things. And then they, got, they, then they got all these sites that you can go to that you only have to read the quick heading and it kind of tells you what it's all about. Because when we get those, they're like, these, they're like the shepherds. It's like, huh. And then after it all happens, I go, Oh, I love that. I love that about God's word. Because there's so many things. How many times, I've been studying now since 1978. I've been spending a lot of time since 1978. And I still, like when Dominic wrote, wrote, read that, and when Doug talked to me, and when I'm looking at the seven feasts again and learning about stuff, I go, Huh, isn't that something? It just is God saying, yeah, I told you, now I'm just telling you, yeah, I'm, I'm assuring you. Hey, 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 here's something else. Ooh, 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 ooh. look at this. And what does that do for us in our faith? It makes faith of the reality, and it makes the Word of God um, um, real. I love it because it says, when we get in, we're going to be studying the Gospel of John, And it equates Jesus to life. And when we learn these things, I'm just going to finish up right here. And when we learn these things, they are what give us what? They give us life. And think about this. What kind of life do they give us? They give us the life that God is. Right? We We already have this. We already have life. I'm living, but Jesus brings me God life. That is so very different. And I am so grateful. Year after year, time after time, yesterday in devotions, family devotions, Josh and Katie are telling Addie and Josiah uh, the realities of the Christmas story. An eternity with God. So she's curious what happens if that, what if you don't accept Jesus? Well, it's an eternity separated from God. She paused. A few moments later, to talk, and she interrupted. She says, I don't want to be separated from God. You're you're not going to be separated from God. Grandma and grandpa, they're not going to be separated from God. I don't want to be separated from God. So they walk through the gospel, making sure she understands. We go in Sunday morning as a family. We're kind of standing around. Josh goes, Addie, would you like to tell everybody here what happened this morning? (laughs) She goes, she looked up at all of us. She goes, I received Jesus Christ as my Savior this morning. So you know, Grandma, what happened? auntie ray you know what happened and her mama you know what happened but in that in that was streams of you god are faithful your word is true and once again we get the opportunity to be affirmed and assured in who god is and his promises toward us amen